RadioInfluence.com. This is Beyond the Badge on Radio Influence. A look inside the biggest and most controversial news stories you need to know now. One of the country's most relied upon law enforcement analysts, Vincent Hill. Good evening and welcome to Beyond the Badge. I am your host, Vincent Hill. Of course, today is Tuesday, 8 p.m., and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to listen to me for just a few minutes. I hope everyone had an amazing start to your week. I know it's only Tuesday. It's on the eve of hump day, so you can almost say we're almost through this week, but I hope everyone had an amazing week. I actually had some downtime this week. I'm not going to New York this week. That's a big surprise, but downtime doesn't mean lazy time. I've been working on my third book in the Steve McNair uh Sahel Kazimi Murders. This will be the third, the final book ever. Uh, it's a trilogy. I was not planning on it, but uh, some new things have surfaced. Uh, so I felt the need to go ahead and write a book. Uh, so working on that, hopefully it will be released July 4th of next year, which will mark the 10 year anniversary of the death of Steve McNair and Sahel Kazimi. So although, yeah, I'm not traveling this week, I'm still pretty busy. But enough about that, because this is not about those books or that case. This is Beyond the Badge. And there's a few things that I want to talk about tonight. Uh, you may remember way back in 2014 in the state of Ohio, 12-year-old Tamir Rice was shot and killed uh, by a police officer. Uh, that police officer, Timothy Lowman, was cleared of all wrongdoing uh, based on the investigation, based on uh, the totality of the evidence, if you will, the 911 call, the video surveillance, Tamir's actions. Uh so he was clear to that, and you would think he would go on with his life. He would be allowed to go on with his life. Well, that's not necessarily the case. I want to update you on what he's doing, what he's been trying to do, and uh, we're going to talk about that in depth. Also, uh, we want to talk about a male by the name of Jason Eric Washington, who was shot and killed by police, campus police in Oregon. And the grand jury just recently uh, decided th that those officers will not face charges. And everyone is in an uproar about that shooting. Of course, it didn't get the mainstream media attention that it would have got if it had been something else. Again, it doesn't fit the narrative. And I'll talk about that in depth. And then I want to talk about a police department. This is true. I can't make this stuff up. That is allowing police to smoke the sticky icky, the weed, the Mary Jane, the marijuana while they're off duty. Now, a lot of people will say it's just weed, but it does affect your reaction times and all of that. And what stipulation will be in place for quote unquote off duty. So we want to talk about that and I'm going to give you my insight. But first I want to talk about uh, that former officer uh, 
out in Ohio who shot and killed uh, Tamir Rice back in 2014. Now, for those that don't remember, Tamir Rice was a 12-year-old kid. He was at a park. He was pointing a gun at someone, or at several people, actually. Uh, turns out it was a fake gun. Uh, of course, you can't really tell with fake guns nowadays which is real which is fake so a caller called in to 911 because there's this guy pointing a gun he says during the call it's probably a toy uh that information was not relayed to the officers nor i don't think it would have made a difference but at some point during that call and i'm going to play this audio and now i can kind of understand why the off the dispatcher did not relay this information to the officers again someone who's not an expert in guns or who's not looking at a gun you know up close and personal you can't tell it's a toy versus versus uh, a real gun just because you assume that it's a juvenile and he wouldn't have a real gun that is ridiculous in itself. But there's a, a, a part of the 911 call I want to play where this individual says he cannot tell if the gun is real or fake. Well, he, you know, he's right here by the, you know, the youth center or whatever. And he's pulling it in and out of his pants. I don't know if it's real or not. Well, okay, we're going to go. Okay, thank you. In the park by the youth center, there's a black male sitting on the swings. He's wearing a camouflage hat, a gray jacket with black sleeves. So he keeps pulling a gun out of his pants and pointing it at people. All right, so there you heard it out of the 911 caller's mouth. I don't know if it's real or not. So what does the call taker, the person that received the call, relay to the dispatcher? Well, blackmail, you hear the description, keeps pulling a gun out and pointing it at people. So the officers respond, and again, this video is still online. You could watch it. Just Google Tamir Rice shooting. You can see Tamir Rice on surveillance footage reach down towards his midsection. So police get a call about a male with a gun. They see Tamir Rice making furtive movements. They return or they fire, and they recover. Uh, what the officer described initially as a black revolver, then he says black handgun at the scene. Radio, um, shots fired, mail down, um, black mail, maybe 20, um, black revolver, black handgun, I'm sending EMS this way in a roadblock. Now, I want to point out something that's key here. You did not hear the officer say black toy gun plastic gun he clearly said black revolver black handgun so the officer even assumed that the gun was real looking at it that close keep in mind he had to have been that close because when you watch the video they pull up really close to Tamir the officer exits his car and says drop the gun then he fires so if the officer was that close and he still believed the gun to be real. How would you expect the 911 caller who was calling from a distance to know whether it was real or fake? So fast forward, the officer is cleared of any wrongdoing based on the investigation, based on 
the grand jury based on all of the information. Again, the video, the 911 call, everything. So again, you would think he would be able to move on with his life. He was fired by that department. They say not for the shooting, but something about he lied in his application. So he's cleared. He's got to make a living. He applies for a different police department, the village of Bel Air, which is somewhere in Ohio. So they don't hire him as a full-time officer. Apparently they have part-time police officers because it's a very small town population of about 4,000 people. He applies. Apparently the Rice family finds out about it and they get the Black Lives Matter involved. They get the ACLU. They get all of these organizations involved. And then this officer, former officer there in Ohio, Lowman actually withdraws his application and does not take the job. Now, the police chief of that town, Richard Flanagan, defended his decision uh, to hire him, basically saying he was cleared of any and all wrongdoing. He was never charged. It's over and done with. And I would have to agree with it. Again, it's tragic that a 12 year old was was shot and killed. But you can't take away the actions of that 12 year old that caused himself to be shot and killed. He was pointing a gun at individuals. He reached for the gun when officers arrived. So why should this officer not be able to make a living? So the mother, Tamir Rice, goes on to say that she disagreed with the decision to give him the job, and it's a personal attack on her family. He shouldn't deserve a second chance. I'm trying to understand why it is a personal attack on her family. Yes, Tamir Rice was killed by this officer. Tamir's actions led to that officer being called to the scene How's this a personal attack on her family? Because one has nothing to do with the other. Why should this man not be able to go out and make a living for himself? Because he had one of the hardest jobs in the world anyway, one that required him to make split second decisions. So now you're saying if he ever tries to get a job in law enforcement, that you're going to boycott it. You're going to get the Black Lives Matter. You're going to get all of these activists involved in discrediting this guy or basically harassing and I would say stalking this guy because how often do you have people just following around you around to see where you're applying for jobs at? So you had the Black Lives Matter, the Cleveland chapter, contacting not only the Bel Air Police Department and its officials, but they were actually contacting residents in that small town of Ohio and saying, hey, you don't want this guy to get a job there because he shoots and kills little kids. When really is enough enough? There were no charges. And like the chief said, it's over and done with. There were no charges. He was cleared. Again, as tragic as it was, it was Tamir's actions that caused that 
fateful event on that day. It was Tamir who left the house with the toy gun. It was Tamir who was pointing it at people, caught on surveillance. It was Tamir who reached for it. It was Tamir, it was Tamir that caused the officer to pull the trigger. When is enough enough? When can this guy move on with his life? Because he was tasked, again, with making a split-second decision. When that entire day, Tamir's mother, Tamir's father, Tamir's uncle, Tamir's cousin, his grandma, the pastor, the deacon at the church, all of them could have rallied around Tamir and say, you're not leaving the house with this toy gun. The mother could have checked Tamir's bedroom like most parents do to their 12-year-olds and say, what the hell is this gun doing in your bedroom? Don't ever leave here with this. In fact, I'm throwing it away. When is enough enough for this officer who had nothing to do with Tamir's actions that day? But all of these people, the family, these activists could have shaped Tamir's actions on that day. They could have been teaching him things like, hey, don't go out and point a gun at people because the chances are either A, you will get shot by someone or B, they will call the police. And if they call the police and you pull said gun on police, police are going to shoot. But instead, they would rather harass this guy the rest of his life to prevent him from making a living. That is not the way this should be going at all. He should be able to go on. Timothy Lowman should be able to go on with his life. He should be able to make a living. And if he loves the job of policing, and if he thinks mentally he can still do the job of policing, he should be allowed to do the job of policing, period. All right. Now, switching gears out to uh, Portland, Oregon. So this shooting actually happened back in June of this year. Uh, 45-year-old individual Jason Eric Washington was shot and killed by campus police, Portland State University police. Now, I will go ahead and lay the groundwork. The two officers were white. The individual that was shot appears to be black. People say he's black. I'm going to go with he's black. All right. So let's lay the groundwork, you know, because that seems to be the standard of police shootings, whether the officer was white and the individual was black. So this all started and this was a cluster F from the beginning. So it all started. People are at a bar. They're watching a game. Actually, the individual that was shot and killed had actually interviewed with the local ABC station just hours before his death uh, while they were at this little sports bar about the game. Uh, So at some point, people get drunk. That's what happens when people are watching games. They go outside. Fight breaks out. Now, I'll preface this with this. I have a concealed weapons permit. We've talked about it on the show. I usually don't leave my house without my gun unless 
unless I know I'm going out to have some adult beverages, right? So one, maybe I'll take it if I know I'm just going to have one. But if I know, like, say, for instance, I'm going to watch UFC, I know I'm going to have a few drinks in between that three and a half hour span that a UFC fight usually takes. So I leave my gun at home. So he's there. He's with his friends. And one of the friends who was heavily intoxicated, who started uh, arguing with another patron outside of the bar, decides, well, I don't want to use my gun while I'm drunk because I may do something stupid, i.e. like bring the gun to the bar when you knew you were going to get drunk. That's the first stupid thing you did. So he gives the gun to Jason Washington. Jason Washington decides now keep in mind there's a fight going on. There's people egging it on, escalating it with cell phone footage as We know that's the age that we live in now. Someone calls the police. Imagine that. There's a drunken brawl outside of a restaurant and people call police. Oh my gosh. So police arrive. These two officers, Officer James Dewey and Sean McKenzie, they arrive. And while they're there, people are still fighting. The officers are even trying to break it up, and people are still kicking on this one guy, his friend, Washington's friend, who had just given the gun up. So, Washington is trying to pull one of the individuals off of his friend. He falls to the ground, and guess what? So does his gun that his friend had just given him. So, boom, he goes to pick it up. What do you think police do? Hey, drop the gun, drop the gun. He grabs a gun, stands up, and police fire. A total of 17 rounds. They hit him nine times. Now, the grand jury decided last month, September 13th, that they would not seek charges against these officers because based on the surveillance footage, just like much in the Tamir Rice case, the officers acted reasonable reasonable based on what they saw there. So it was 415-page grand document testimony from a grand jury testimony from, you know, witnesses that were there, experts, yada, yada, yada. But the key to this is during this whole altercation, again, there were people with their cell phones. One young lady caught a pretty awesome vantage point, at least for the officers, because you could clearly see the gun. I I don't know if it was one of those clip holsters or whatever, but it wasn't concealed. It was out in the open. It was kind of clipped on his pocket and you could clearly see the gun. So when he falls, of course, the gun falls out. So there's error number two. Remember the friend said, I didn't want to do anything stupid. So I gave my gun away. Well, A, error number one, do not bring a gun to a bar when you know you're going to get drunk. Error number two, don't have a faulty, cheap, level one, unsecured holster. Number three, don't clip it to your pants while you're involved in a fight because even if the gun hadn't have fallen out, 
anyone who saw that gun out in the open could have grabbed it and used it against you. So there's error number two. Boom. Open and shut case as far as the grand jury's concerned. But of course, that's not how everyone sees it. Now they're saying, hey, we want the campus police disarmed. We knew this was going to eventually escalate to someone being killed because I assume the campus police they uh, just started, I believe, in 2014 and people were against it because they knew uh, it was just a matter of time. And the exact quote is everyone who expressed dissent over the years to arm the CPSO and the creation of a police force knew that one day this decision would result in deadly violence and we knew that it will continue to happen and we know it will continue to happen as long as the campus police remain deputized and armed. So if I'm understanding that statement right, they're actually blaming the campus police for this incident because, get this, Jason Washington, former veteran postal worker, had a valid concealed carry permit. Well, let me touch on that for a minute. Valid concealed carry permit. Remember, the gun was outside, clipped on his pocket of his shorts. So it wasn't concealed. That's one. And then two, just like in Minnesota, where the girl face li- Facebook lived her baby daddy being shot and says he has a permit. Number two, police in that exact moment, when they see a gun hit the ground and then they see an individual pick up said gun, do not have time, nor could they validate in a split second while I'm pulling out my gun, pointing it at you, because now it's a deadly force situation. Sir, do you have a concealed carry permit? Are you licensed to carry that gun? That's not how it works. When I see someone with a gun, I pull my gun, point at my target, and then I say things like, drop the gun, drop the gun, drop the gun. And just like that, that's exactly how fast that happens. That was audio from the body cam of the shooting of Jason Washington. You heard him. You heard an officer say he's got a gun. Then you hear him say, drop the gun. We will shoot you. That's how it works. You don't have time to say, dude, are you trying to shoot me? Are you trying to shoot the public? Because remember, the officer's job not only is to protect himself, but protect the public. Now, what you did not hear in that audio, which is there, trust me, it's there, was as the officers arrived, they were already told by one individual, he pointed a gun at us. Now, I assume maybe he is the friend that was drunk enough that gave his gun away, but the officers within this minute and a half that it took to escalate to deadly force have already heard he pointed a gun at us. He pointed a gun at us. So then they see the gun 
You heard it. Then you could hear them tell the guy, drop the gun, drop the gun. We will shoot several commands. Then they shoot. So how at this point is it the police officer's fault because he had a concealed carry permit? One has nothing to do with the other. I have said concealed carry permit. I carry all the time. But if I'm in a situation, if I'm ever in a situation where my gun falls to the floor while police are there, I'm not going to go pick it up because I know the officer is going to assume that I'm attempting to use deadly force either against them or someone else. So while all of these activists are saying this is the police department's fault and they should unarm the campus police and all of that, why is it the officer's fault? This is ridiculous. So now what's going to happen is I'm sure not only are they trying to disband the campus police, I'm sure that they're going to sue those two officers. They're going to demand their resignation. They're going to do all the stuff we've always seen because it's always the people that have no clue. And it's always the people who still can't take ownership for someone's actions that cause the most ruckus. And speaking of ruckus, it's ironic to me, it's ironic that his friend who gave him the gun was white. He was in a confrontation with a black man who had his phone in his face. I don't know if it was because it was the black white thing or whatever. And that's what calls police to get there. All of these groups, all of these people that always have a problem with police being there are usually the ones that cause police to show up because had that individual who his friend Washington's friend was arguing with just been the bigger guy, put your phone away. Don't put it in his freaking face, just feet away from him, almost inches away from him and egg him on to hit you. Just be the bigger man and walk away. But now you would probably be the main one on the news saying this is wrong. Just another white police officer killing a black man. But yet you were trying to agitate this white man who knew he was probably crazy enough to shoot you. So he gives his gun to his friend who is now dead because of your actions. Because you were agitating the fight. You were being physical in the fight. But somehow, it's the police officer's fault. Yeah, funny how that works. All right. Now, remember at the top of the show, I said there's a police department allowing police officers to smoke that sticky icky, the Mary Jane while they're off duty. Well, luckily, it's not a police department here in the U.S. Yet. (laughs) Yet. 
I don't think it'll ever happen here. God, I, I, I hope not. But uh, police department in Canada, Ottawa, will allow the use of marijuana off-duty starting uh, tomorrow, as a matter of fact, October 17th. But there are restrictions. So it says officers will be allowed to use marijuana off-duty starting October 17th. But they will be required to start their shifts fit for duty. Okay, if that's the only stipulation, I think we got a little problem. Because what's fit for duty? Because I've seen people use marijuana who are still fully functional. But think about this. Okay, I just smoked a joint. I'm fully functional. I can report to duty fully fit. Okay. And then I go out and I shoot someone. And then part of my department policy is to do a blood test for an intoxicant because marijuana is an intoxicant. So do I then get out of any criminal or civil liability because my my department has allowed me to smoke marijuana? An officer needs to be fit for duty regardless of what he or she may be doing off duty. That is legal. Hmm. Well, I don't know. I don't know how that's going to go. But I know here in the States, that wouldn't work. Because when you when you look at, for instance, uh, Amber Geiger in Dallas, who shot the guy in his own apartment, guess what they did? They did a drug screen. They did blood work to see if she was under the influence of an intoxicant. She had just gotten off duty, so you would assume she was fit that entire day to be on duty. So now if you say you were allowing you to be under the influence of an intoxicant, but be fit for duty, how do you gauge whether that person is fit for duty? Do you make them pee in a cup right there on the spot? And if their THC levels over a certain amount, you say, hey, you're not fit. Or do you just take them at their word to say, nah, I'm good. Well, your clothes smell like weed. Ah, no, 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 no. I was at home. I smoked a joint or two while in uniform, but I'm fit for duty. I can walk a straight line. Man, that is like one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. And thankfully, it's across the border with those Canadians, <laughs> eh? All right, we're about out of time, and I got to get back to writing this book. I want to thank you, of course, as always, for listening. Hey, I got a special service announcement, PSA, as they call it. I want to thank you so much. Over 830,000 downloads for Beyond the Badge. That is such a blessing. We're almost at a million downloads. One million downloads. One million people listening to this crazy old guy talk about police stuff. So I want to thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. But before we go, as always, it's time for my 10-7 segment. And tonight I want to recognize Corporal Garrett Willis Hall of the Fort Worth Police Department, Fort Worth, Texas. It's end of watch Friday, September 14th, 2018. Corporal Hull succumbed to a gunshot wound sustained the previous night as he and another officer of the Criminal Intelligence Unit attempted to apprehend three armed robbery suspects. 
The officers had been conducting surveillance of the three suspects who had been involved in more than 15 armed robberies in which three people were shot. The suspects entered a bar on the 400 block of West Bison Street shortly before midnight and robbed the 10 patrons at gunpoint. As they fled from the building, the officers attempted to take them into custody. All three suspects attempted to flee on foot and to the surrounding neighborhood. During the foot pursuit, one of the men opened fire, striking Corporal Hole in the head. Other officers returned fire and killed the subject before placing Corporal Hole in a patrol car, transporting him to a hospital. The other two suspects were apprehended nearby. Corporal Hole succumbed succumbed to his wounds the following evening. He had served with the Fort Worth Police Department for 17 years. He is survived by his wife and two young daughters. He was promoted to the rank of corporal after his death. Age 40 years old, 17 years with the Fort Worth Police Department. End of watch, September 14th, 2018. I want to thank him for his service to the community of Fort Worth. I want to thank him for his commitment to protect and serve. Godspeed to him. My prayers to his wife and two daughters. And thank you so much. I will see you next week. Same time, same place, right here. Radioinfluence.com. Good night. To continue the conversation, get updates on the show, and to find out when you can see him on television, follow Vincent on Twitter at Vincent Hill TV. That's at Vincent Hill TV. This has been Beyond the Badge on Radio Influence. This is an Ian Beckles flavor in your ear quick fix on Radio Influence. Kanye West uh, sitting in the Oval Office with Mr. Donald Trump. Now, I'm going to say this, as much as I don't, as much as I hope that Donald Trump doesn't represent white America, I hope that he doesn't. In the same breath, I'm hoping that Kanye West doesn't represent black America. Okay, so we have two narcissistic me guys in the Oval Office just posturing. Now, Kanye West obviously is married to Kim Kardashian. Kim Kardashian tried to free a lovely lady who was in jail wrongly. She walked up in the the White House without pageantry and fanfare, took one picture, that was it, got the lady out and and, and boned out. You're going to walk up in there and have Kanye West just... I don't know what he was doing. I really don't. You can find Ian Beckles' Flavor in Your Ear on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and RadioInfluence.com.